Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah If. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 1968 film Lion in Winter with guest Morgan Morales. Welcome. Hi. So, like Sarah said, my name is Morgan Morales. I am a PhD student. I am trying to be a historian and working on it, not of medieval history. My experience with medieval history is taking two classes as an undergrad within one term and knowing definitively that I was not a medievalist. (laughs) Yeah, really interesting classes, but I also knew this is not my area. So I am actually a historian of the Holocaust and gender issues within the Holocaust. More specifically, my research is about abortion during the Holocaust. Yes, which I really need to hear more about at some point because it sounds so fascinating. There's not a whole lot written on it yet, so it's okay that you're yeah. not it's okay that you're not there yet. We're working on it. Yes, I'm excited for that to be something that is important to read about in the field after you write your dissertation. <sighs> no pressure. <laughs> So uh, why was this a movie that you in particular wanted to talk about? So I love this movie. I have been watching classic films for pretty much my entire life. Uh, My mom got me started watching them when I was about 11 years old. This is one that has always stood out. And the nice thing about it is that even even though I first saw it when I was a teenager, I get more out of it the older that I get. I also really love Mm -hmm. Catherine Hepburn. Like, she is not my all-time favorite actress, but she's pretty darn close. I love Katherine Hepburn, and I love the performance so here. And I love the interactions with Peter O'Toole. So I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, I also saw this movie when I was a teenager. And as is probably pretty apparent, honestly, from this podcast, I don't really know anything about film. However, <laughs> I know things about medieval history. And this movie is actually one of the pieces of media that I think really made me into a medievalist, that this is something that I watched before a family trip to England. And it was this and then being inspired to read more about Eleanor's story in particular, that I think really got me excited about the Middle Ages and in particular about uh, women's history in the medieval world. So I'm very excited to finally be doing this movie. Oh, that's, that's even more fun. Yeah, that that's that is even more fun. <laughs> so every time someone says that they don't know a lot about movies, I think of that quote from The Office with Dwight Schrute, where he tells Jim, I know everything about movies. I've seen 250 of them. <laughs> I actually do know a lot about movies because I, I frankly have probably watched far too many. Um, definitely more than 250. There's, there's a lot of, of not entirely necessary film history and film trivia living in my brain. So. <laughs> For me, there is not much, but I do know, and one of my probably favorite trivia facts is that Peter O'Toole, who is one of the stars of this movie playing King Henry II, also played a younger Henry II in Beckett, which I just find delightful that he got to play that role twice. I know. I kind of wish he had done a trilogy of it. And I like that movie as well. I think it's pretty decent. The last time I watched it was actually on a big screen at the Egyptian theater in downtown Hollywood. And after the film, Peter O'Toole came out for an hour long conversation with Ben Mankiewicz, who is a host on Turner Mm -hmm. Classic Movies. It was an absolutely wonderful conversation. It was, I think maybe two and a half years before he died. It was at the Turner Classic Movies film festival that they hold every spring in Hollywood. And each time they have it, they usually honor somebody. 
And in this case, they were honoring Peter O'Toole. They were doing his hand and footprints in front of the Chinese theater. Beckett was screened at the Egyptian theater. They gave him the opportunity to choose which movie he wanted to talk about with audiences. And he chose Beckett. And during his Q&A, I mean, he was very lively and very, you know, mm -hmm. he referred to the Twilight movies as toilets, which I will forever love him <laughs> for. But he took a good chunk not of wrong. time. He's not wrong. But he took a good chunk of time to talk about how much he loved the experience of making The Lion in Winter and how much of that was attributed to working with Katherine Hepburn. Yeah. It shows in the final result. Yes. She is so fantastic. Uh, so she plays Eleanor of Aquitaine. The chemistry that they have in this movie, I think, is really what makes it so great. I think the dialogue is clearly fantastic, but it's really the way that they interact with one another that I think really makes this an absolutely amazing film. I think so, too. And I think that's attributed really to the personalities that they both have as actors and also, I think they're both actors who really relished theater acting. Yes. And this used to be a play, I believe, right? Yeah, it was. Or it, is a play. So it, it was a play. And one of the, the nice things I think about this screenplay is that it was adapted by the writer of the play. So he got to take. Oh. Yeah, he got to transition his story from stage to screen. It's, it's not entirely uncommon, but it's not common to happen. There are instances mm -hmm. of writers getting to adapt their works for the screen. I think probably one of the more well-known one is William Goldwyn, Goldman, who wrote the novel for The Princess Bride and got to write the screenplay for the film. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, Gillian Flynn wrote Gone Girl and got to write her own screenplay for Gone Girl. And I think actually improved on some things from that book. But yeah, you can definitely tell that this mm -hmm. was a stage play. And I think that the writer absolutely did a really good job of keeping intact kind of that intimate feel of the theater for what is yeah. really quite a large, stunning production. Yeah. And they were both nominated for Oscars, correct? They were. Uh, one of them won. <laughs> I know that must have been Catherine Hepburn. It was Catherine Hepburn. So we will talk about Peter O'Toole and his Oscar history first. Peter O'Toole was nominated for eight competitive Oscars throughout his career. He never won. He never got a competitive Oscar. He was given an honorary Oscar in, I think it was 2002. And then he would go on to be nominated again for a competitive Oscar after that for 2006 for the movie Venus. But he lost to Forrest Whitaker for The Last King of Scotland, which is completely valid. Yeah, that was very much deserved on Forrest Whitaker's part. Yeah. The Academy has a habit of not awarding people for the correct movies. And I think 1968 is a really good example of that because he lost to Cliff Robertson for the movie Charlie. If, if you have seen any movies recently... I have not heard of that. that that's okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it right now. If you've seen any <laughs> movies right now that deal with any kind of autism or any kind of mental illness, you know that by and large they are not good. Now imagine them doing uh -huh. that in 1968. Oh dear. Yes. So Cliff Robertson won for playing... A, an autistic man named Charlie. It's not a good movie. It's not a good performance. If we're looking at the years that Peter O'Toole was nominated and should have won, 1968 is it. This is the performance for which he That's should have bad. won the Oscar. It is. It, it is. But luckily, it was not a total loss on Oscar night for them. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was nominated. I don't remember which number of nominations this was for her. Eventually, she would be nominated for 12 total and winning four. 
Which is very impressive. It is impressive. Well-deserved, I would say. Well-deserved, yes. All four really great performances. I think more of note is the fact that all 12 nominations, and therefore all four wins, were in the same category. She was always nominated and winning as a leading actress, and never Hmm. was nominated as a supporting actress. So when you look at Meryl Streep and her 21 nominations and her three wins, there are quite a few supporting nominations in there. Her first Oscar in 1971 was as Best Supporting Actress for Kramer vs. Kramer. So Katherine Hepburn holds the record for the most nomination for the most wins for a performer in a single category. So her first Oscar was in 1933 for Morning Glory. Then in 1967, she won for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, so she won two years in a row. She won two years in a row. Not unheard of, but not common. And then she would win again for a final time in 1982 for On Golden Pond. For this Oscar, for The Lion in Winter, she actually tied with Barbara Streisand for (laughs) Funny Girl. Uh, This is what I usually refer to as the ingenue win for the Oscars, in that they have picked someone new and exciting and who is kind of adorable and gives really good speeches. I think this is kind of how Reese Witherspoon got her Oscar for Walk the Line. She just ends up being likable because this is where Barbara mm-hmm. Streisand got up on stage, looked at the Oscar and said, hello, gorgeous, when she won. So it creates a really great <laughs> moment. And it's not that Funny Girl is a bad movie or it's a bad performance. It's just that it really pales in comparison to what Katherine Hepburn does in The Lion in Winter. A little bit more trivia. Betty Davis wanted to be the first actress to win three Oscars. So when Katherine Hepburn actually made it to win three Oscars, Betty Davis referred to it as half of one because she tied with Barbara Streisand. Ouch. Yeah, Betty Davis was a little bitter <laughs> about that. Bit, yeah, just a little bit. So she she did already win two. And she won two before Katherine Hepburn did. She just never mm-hmm. got that elusive third Oscar. Yeah, and then Katherine Hepburn got a four. So. She did, and, but she never went the years that she won. In her entire oh. in her entire history of being nominated for an Oscar, she never went the year she nom- was nominated. She only ever attended the Oscar ceremony once to present, I think it was the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award, and I don't remember mm-hmm. who she was presenting it to. But, you know, Katherine Hepburn makes her very first Oscars appearance. She walks onto the stage wearing pants, as she often did, and, mm-hmm. you know, gets, of course, a standing ovation. So that, that, that's Katherine Hepburn's Oscar history. And if you would ever like to see her Academy Awards, they are all on display at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Which I'm excited to go do, uh, actually, very probably before this episode is released. Uh, by the time it's out, I will have seen them. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I, I have a picture yeah. of me by them, apparently. I look very excited. So, But it was exciting <laughs> to see them, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm going to add that to my list. I'm visiting family in D.C. in mid-September, so. Okay, enjoy. So uh, the other cast of this movie is also pretty impressive. And honestly, I hadn't even remembered who the other actors in this film were, that a very young Anthony Hopkins plays Richard the Lionheart. His first film. He's he's such a baby. It's so weird to see him in this Definitely, because I think we all picture him as kind of, you know, either bald or graying or as Hannibal Lecter. I picture him 100% as Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> it's fair. He's, he's earned it. He worked hard for that. Yes. <laughs> but he, you know, also has a great performance in this. Uh, John Castle, who plays Jeffrey, isn't somebody that I know very well. I actually, yeah, no, I actually don't know him terribly well either, although I know I have seen him in other things. I think this is one of those cases where you have a lot of British stage actors right. occupying the smaller parts. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, Nigel Terry, who plays John, will later play Arthur in Excalibur, uh, which I describe as him then playing a better king, but in a worse movie, since it's not very good. No, no, it's, it's, it's not. I think he does a wonderfully scene-chewing job here. Yes, I think he's great. And I also am a big fan of Timothy Dalton as Philip II. I think he does a fantastic job. And of course, Timothy Dalton would go on to very briefly be James Bond. And what I honestly know him best for is as his amazing turn as Simon Skinner in Hot Fuzz. You know, if you only know Timothy Dalton from one thing, it should probably be Hot Fuzz. Yes. And the other thing I will say is that you can really see in this movie already that he has quite good comedic timing in a couple of his scenes. Definitely. there That definitely comes through. I mean, I, I was watching this and I was thinking, you would not look at this man and think that he would be James Bond. And then I was thinking, you look at him as James Bond and you're still not quite sure you're thinking of him as James Bond. I, <laughs> you know, it took that might be why he wasn't a successful James Bond. <laughs> that, you know, it very well might be. He did also do a television show that I really enjoy with an actress who was discussed in a previous episode of this podcast. He did a television show with Ava Green called Penny Dreadful, and it's this... Um, oh, God, I have seen that. Yeah, it's this... I really you know, don't remember that. Kind yes. of this enjoyable menagerie of old-school monsters, and you know, he plays kind of a, a patriarchal father figure, and Ava Green plays Vanessa Ives, who is uh, basically the lead, and I actually really enjoy the show. It's, other than Hot Fuzz, it's probably the third thing I enjoy Timothy Dalton in most because he also did a guest arc on a television show called Chuck with Zachary Levi, who is now Shazam Mm, and Yvonne Strahovski, who is on um, The Handmaid's Tale. And he's hilarious on that Mm. show. And again, that's going back to the fact that he's, he has very good comedic instincts, which we do see in him playing Philip. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what makes his performance in Hot Fuzz so fantastic. And yeah, Timothy uh, Timothy Dreadful, uh, Penny Dreadful as well. (laughs) He's really quite great in that. And also, I would say really has a really interesting chemistry with Eva Green in that, who is his sort of adoptive daughter in some ways. Yeah, yeah. She and and his daughter on that show were good friends. And yeah, they... Yeah, he's kind of her de facto father, and it is a really nice relationship. Sir Malcolm, that's his name on the show. Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I watched the first season, and then I just got distracted and never finished it, so. Your choice, if you finish it. (laughs) I'll get back to it one day. Yeah, it's only three seasons. That's not a huge commitment. True. So, and then the last person that I wanted to mention is uh, Jane Merrow plays Alice, but I also do not especially know her from anything. I just felt that she was worth mentioning because it's a fairly big part. It is a fairly big part. And it's, I think, worth mentioning also because both female parts, I mean, not to spoil the ending because we're not doing the summary part yet, but I mean, both female parts passed the Decker test. Yes, which is very exciting. Yeah, two it's whole quite rare, unfortunately, women. that there are in fact two women who survived to the end of the movie. This might be one of the first. Who have names. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so this actually might be a record. <laughs> oh, that, that is sad. Actually, the other movie that I that I suggested I discuss with you does pass the test, and there is more than one woman. Ooh. Yes. Multiples. So yes. exciting. Yeah. So that 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 movie that movie's a whole different vibe. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> With that, we're going to move on to our next section, which is enumeratio, or a recap of the movie. So to begin, I'm just going to give a very brief summary recap to orient us. 
King Henry II of England, his estranged and literally imprisoned wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, their sons, Richard, Geoffrey, and John, King Philip II of France, and Henry's mistress, Alice, who is also Richard's fiancée and Philip's sister, meet in 1183 at Chinon for a Christmas court. Scheming ensues as Henry attempts to give his favorite son, John, the Aquitaine, the crown, and Alice, insofar as he assumes she will still remain his mistress. Eleanor tries to keep them all for Richard. All three boys vie for the crown. Alice attempts to avoid marrying either Richard or John, and Philip works to strengthen France's position in their relationship with England. At its heart, however, the film is a character study of the relation of the English royal family, and in particular, a portrait of the tumultuous marriage of Eleanor and Henry. I, I actually really like the family aspect of it. The fact that it is, it's a family drama. It just happened to be royal and living in 1183. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the things that I love about this movie is that there aren't as many character-focused medieval films as I would like as a medievalist, and this is a very good example of one. They do tend to be more action-based, and I like that this one I think has two scenes you could maybe classify as action, and that's you know, the scene that starts the movie, and then um, we'll get to the other one later on, because it's kind of lame, but enjoyably so. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so we do actually have a sword fighting scene right at the beginning where Henry is practicing sword fighting with John and insists that he is doing well to the observer. It does not seem like he is doing especially well. No, no, he's, yeah, no, he hasn't been paying attention to his training. No, it's a little odd, I would say, in that, so the character is supposed to be in his six, about uh, 16, 17. He's being played by an actor who's in his early 20s, but he's also being played, I think, as even slightly a bit younger than his actual age. I think what he comes across as, as this kind of stereotypical character that you do sometimes see in medieval films, but usually it's, you know, the serf or squire that is kind of infantilized to kind of show the kind of masculinity of, you know, a knight or a king. And I think that that's, that's kind of what John reminds me of here because it's very much, honestly, I think the closest portrayal of John that we have seen to this is the lion in Disney's Robin Hood. Yes, absolutely. That it's this uh, kind of cringing, petulant King John who I think that point about masculinity is absolutely right, that he is supposed to be a stark contrast to both his father and, in particular, his oldest brother, Richard. Very much so, and that, that is basically the next one of the next scenes where you kind of see that very stark contrast between John on the ground yes. sniveling and... Yes. Yeah. So it's also very quickly established that Henry is sleeping with Alice, who is meant to be Richard's fiance, although he's potentially trying to marry her off to John instead. And also that she is very clearly, and I did look up the ages about this, she is 27 years younger than him, making him very much old enough to be her father. Yeah. And also it gets even worse when you realize that he has in fact known her since she was a child. So there's some creepy grooming happening with this whole situation. It is 100% creepy. There's nothing comfortable about this relationship whatsoever. And actually what was really noticeable to me in this scene, I mean, at first I was kind of thinking, oh, it's a little bit more colorful than I remember the last time I watched it is actually how they first depict her. One of the first things you see of her before you even really get a clear view of her face is cleavage. Yes, it's there's a shot of her cleavage and then it kind of pans upward, I think. Yeah, and that, yeah. So, and I think that, that that kind of adds to the creepiness, at least for me as a viewer. 
I'm not entirely sure that making this film in 1967-68, they, in they intended that to be creepy the way that I now find it creepy. Yes. I'm also not sure entirely to what extent they intended her to be. And I felt very guilty about this, but I find her ultimately very unlikable. Yeah. Um, that she also is in her own way rather childish, but at the same time has this kind of awkward possessiveness and this very, in some ways, stereotypical hatred of Eleanor as her rival, as opposed to acknowledging that really probably the problem is Henry and his inappropriate behavior toward women and his long history of that. It's very much the idea of pitting women against women, and it's very much, you know, the younger woman competing with an older woman who is, frankly, not even playing the game. Yes, and there's something kind of sad about it, honestly, and that, as I said, makes Alice come off as rather immature and unlikable, even though at the same time I feel very bad for her. It, it definitely. There is one moment toward the end, though, which we'll get to, where I do think she does display a certain um, maturity and intuitiveness. Yes. But yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a creepy relationship definitely between Henry and Alice. Yeah. Henry announces that he is going to have a Christmas court at Chinon and that he will be getting Eleanor out of the castle in which she is imprisoned, Salisbury Tower for this, and also will be bringing along his other two sons, Richard and Geoffrey. So I love the introduction of all of these characters. Eleanor is sitting at a window, I think, and the second someone comes in, looks and says, so Henry's having a Christmas court. And her immediate deduction of what is happening, I think really just right away sets out how clever and how clever she is and how quickly she responds to everything that's happening around her. Yeah, so I think that introduction kind of sets up two things because the way that she's framed, she almost looks like she's one of the pieces of artwork in an illuminated manuscript, the way they have her sitting in the window doing what would essentially be referred to as women's work, kind of, there's almost a uh -huh. halo with the light around her, but then she yes. speaks and you know just how intelligent and intuitive this woman is. Yes, which is brilliant. Yeah. And then Richard and Jeffrey, I think similarly, their introductions are quite deliberate. Richard is in the middle of a joust and is portrayed very much as a successful and brutal warrior who wins his joust and then very nearly murders the man, basically, as far as I can tell, for fun, because this is not, in fact, a war. It is a tournament. Yes. That, that definitely, but like we said, contrasting Richard's introduction with John's introduction, you're getting two yeah. very different people, two people who are, you know, in very different levels of skill, but also mentality. But also, I think you're, you're seeing and you're going to see with those two introductions, two people who are kind of entitled to a certain amount of uh, leeway in terms of their behavior. Absolutely. So it's not quite as, as, you know, here are these stark differences, but there are there are some similarities there that yeah. would be attributed to upbringing. Yes. And then Jeffrey is displayed, I think, also tellingly in the midst, not of actually participating in what is a kind of mock melee battle of the kind that was quite popular at the time, but as directing one. And which is sort of ironic in some ways in that it was actually allegedly, according to one account, in participating in one such tournament that he died. But he is here presented as directing it, which I think very much then sets up the extent to which he is somebody who is acting behind the scenes, while not openly at least seeming to be a 
candidate for being king, which is the big question. Yeah, and I think it also works well in terms of Eleanor's introduction because you're kind of seeing the two people who are perhaps the most clever at this little game, at least for the time being, or you're seeing that he shares something of her intelligence, even if it might not quite manifest that way toward the end. Yes. We return to Shinon and the gradual arrival of uh, Henry's assorted family members. First of all, I do just want to add, there are a lot of background dogs, including an Irish wolfhound, which was my childhood dog, and I am very on board with the dog presence in this film. It's wonderful. Anytime you can bring dogs in, I mean, they add anything to a scene. Absolutely. And there's actually one particular scene that I'm going to talk about later where I think there's some really spectacular dog acting. I Definitely. That's one thing I noticed <laughs> as well here. More dogs. Yes. Need more dogs. <laughs> They, um, the family members start to arrive. Jeffrey and John immediately seem to get on fairly well, while in contrast, Richard and John have some pretty apparent initial hostility. And John also makes clear in his conversation with his brothers that he is not fond of his mother. So that, that's where he differs from, from Prince John in Disney's Robin Hood. So he's not going to cry for mother while sucking his thumb. He might suck his thumb, but he might not cry for mother. He'll cry for daddy. Yes, he is. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so he's being presented very much as very childish in that same way, but also very much as the person who is his father's favorite and who is, I think, quite deliberately playing off of that in terms of his relationship with his parents. And I would imagine that some of the idea behind his hostility to his mother is both the fact that he feels that his mother didn't pay as much attention to him but also the fact that I bet he scores points with his father for hating his mother. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so, definitely. And then Eleanor arrives. And of course, Eleanor is accompanied by singers and on a throne on a rowboat. And it is the most regal thing I've ever seen. It's so fucking perfect. Everything yes. about that entrance is, is completely appropriate. That's not just how Eleanor of Aquitaine should make her arrival. I feel it's how Catherine Hepburn playing Eleanor of Aquitaine should make her arrival. Nothing else would have been appropriate. It's just such a perfect visual, just such a perfect scene. And uh, I also think that they do a great job immediately with leading into seeing what that dynamic between Eleanor and Henry is like. So he begins, I think the line is, he says, uh, did the channel part for you? And she responds, it went flat when I told it to. I didn't think to ask for more. Which is so great. And I think that that's actually the beginning to really some truly wonderful dialogue. The dialogue in this movie in general is fantastic. And I think a lot of the moments when it's at its best is when Eleanor and Henry are verbally sparring with one another. It's absolutely, I mean, there were two scenes in particular that I picked out when I was watching it that really struck me, and it's the scenes where the, really the two of them are going at it together verbally, um, and not just in terms of fighting with each other, but of, of kind of relating to each other, and this really sets this, this introductory scene, him asking if, if the water's parted for her, I mean, that's just the start of it, and it's like the dialogue needed to kick off when you see the two of them together for the first time. This is the moment where you realize this is what the movie is about. Yeah. The movie is about them. Definitely. And I think it's also really fascinating the extent to which she really sweeps in and is immediately this regal presence who in a lot of ways seems to take charge despite the fact that Henry is also very much an impressive figure. Yeah, it really kind of makes you question, you know, the terms of her arrest and imprisonment. 
Yes. Because she comes in there every bit the queen that she is and should be. And so my sense, I will say, just of her arrest and imprisonment is very much that even though she was kept under arrest and was not allowed to move around, she is very much kept in a style appropriate to her status. That's what, that, and that's what I figured and what very little I know of this period and of Eleanor, Eleanor of Aquitaine myself. That, that's the sense that I got as well. So. And the other thing that I will say about her and her imprisonment is, of course, and this will be made apparent throughout the film as well, is that she is very much somebody who was imprisoned because she is dangerous and because she is powerful. And in particular, because she could very easily mount a successful rebellion against her husband if she were not imprisoned and chose to do so. Good for her. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the film also, I would say, as Eleanor kind of sweeps in, it does an oddly good job in some ways of bringing up relevant or semi-relevant historical details through Eleanor's reminiscences without having them seem too much out of place. It's really a well done exposition. That doesn't really happen very often, but in, in its exp- exposition that could be delivered in a really awkward way, considering it is quite a bit of historical information, but it's really done quite seamlessly. And I think that that occurs regularly throughout the film. Yeah. So in this particular instance, she manages to, through what is essentially an exposition line, tell the audience that she had once been married to King Philip's father, Louis VII of France, but had no sons, and that then their marriage was annulled and she married Henry, and then tells her sons, such my angels is the role of sex in history. So I was doing a little bit of background information. I think it was um, consanguinity? Consanguinity, yes. Not a word that comes up in my research often. Yeah, so they were too closely, that was the, the claim they made when seeking an annulment, is that they were too closely related. The interesting thing about European royalty in this period is that almost all of them are probably too closely related to be married according to canon law, because uh, you have to be separated by seven degrees, which means so far as you cannot marry your, I think, fourth cousin. Okay. It forbids pretty distant relatives, and by the 12th century, all of European royalty is relatively closely related. Yeah. So actually, in doing some of my research on this and looking up things, um, and when I say research, I mean really just kind of Googling things really quickly. Apparently, Catherine Hepburn is a very distant descendant of Eleanor of Aquitaine. That is so cool. <laughs> but I, I don't know how accurate that is or if that's just one of those things now where we, you know, kind of like how we assume everyone in England is now just related to Queen Victoria. Uh-huh. I hope it's true, though. I hope it's true. That makes it even better than it was already great. I do appreciate that all subsequent English monarchs were in fact descended from Eleanor up to today. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that, that's pretty damn impressive. Spoiler for history is ultimately because they're all descended from John, but still. That's, you know, whatever, <laughs> John. But more importantly, all descended from Eleanor, which is great. I mean, if we're and looking at matrilineal lines, which many cultures do look at matrilineal lines, it's Eleanor. Yes, Exactly. And yeah, so the consanguinity ends up being really interesting because by this period, it's almost a kind of get out of jail free card in terms of people are getting married, knowing that their relationship is arguably maybe a little bit too close. You try to get a papal dispensation. And then if the marriage isn't working out for some reason, then you are suddenly struck with a fit of conscience about how your marriage should never have been allowed. Oh, no. One of the things that makes this particular annulment relatively unusual and compared to a lot of them 
is that most often it is the husbands who are pressing for annulment often because they don't have sons. And this is one of the cases where Eleanor actually seems to have been the main person pressing for the annulment because while the not having sons yet thing was of concern to Louis, he didn't want to lose her lands. Okay, so and I think that probably also would contribute to making her dangerous because she's making that own decision not to prioritize having male heirs, but to, you know, keep her own lands. I, I think that's actually really interesting. Yeah, and the other thing that I will just say about her in general is that she, despite being married to first the King of France and then the Count of Anjou, who became the King of England, she routinely remained, for the most part, in control of the Aquitaine, with the exception of periods in which she um, had Richard, in fact, ruling it in her stead. But never her husband's. The nobles of Aquitaine never, in fact, really accepted either of her husbands as their lord, and instead very much treated her as their lord and the one whom ultimately they would listen to. That's wonderful and also counter to what we usually think of, I think, with the medieval period and marriage and property rights. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think is really exciting in terms of doing research on medieval women is that medieval women did have much more significant property rights than most people often assume. And in particular, there are often things that women inherit that is not included in their dowries that they can potentially maintain control over. And for somebody of Eleanor's status, that could be quite substantial property and could make her quite an important political force. So the combination of the fact that she is put in that position in terms of property rights and the fact that she's clearly somebody who had a quite forceful personality really makes her able to become, I would say, one of the most powerful people of her age. So this really all fits into the woman who walks into Chignon on Christmas and owns the place, basically. Exactly. And I'm not sure that there are many other women in the Middle Ages that you could justifiably have quite that portrayal, although there aren't zero, and she is very much somebody who you can really see behaving as a queen because she is the one who is easily as powerful as her husband in a lot of ways. And and it seems comfortable with that power, which is great. Yes. The family all arrives and unites, and they prepare to meet Philip, who is arriving to begin negotiations, having to do with the fact that his sister Alice, who has been at the English court most of her life, was supposed to have married Richard a very long time ago and still has not married Richard. In this scene in general, I will say just as a kind of quick accuracy note, I really appreciate that there's this combination, which you don't often see in medieval films, of on the one hand, there is quite a bit of color, there is clearly splendor surrounding the royal court, but there is also dirt and there are chickens wandering around and dogs wandering around, and this is something that is essentially just considered normal. And I really appreciate that because I think often medieval films either make everything very gray and dull and covered in mud, or in some kind of Arthurian kind of fantastical pictures then kind of take away the muddiness and the dirt and in fact only then have this kind of very austere kind of clean splendor. By and large, I don't think movies from the late 1960s, early 1970s are particularly attractive to look at. So it's really something that caught my eye rewatching this is how beautiful the colors look in this movie. And I was looking up, yeah. I was looking things up, and apparently that is attributed to Catherine Hepburn. Really? Yeah, she thought that at the very least, Eleanor should have more colorful costumes and be surrounded by more color. 
Um, and she thought that that was indicative of the experiences that Eleanor had had, one of which was taking part in a crusade and traveling to what yeah. is now called the Middle East. So she thought that, you know, Eleanor would have experienced more colors. She would have experienced a bit more vibrancy. And so her idea was, let's bring that into this castle. Yes. And she also is somebody who very much had the reputation for enjoying the luxurious textiles appropriate to her status and enjoying things that were brightly colored and well-made. Again, good for her. Yeah, exactly. If you can afford it, go for it. (laughs) Philip arrives. I love that Eleanor introduces herself by saying, I'm Eleanor who might have been your mother. You know, I think that immediately puts him in his place. Yes. That's that's a power line right there. It's a power line. And in a lot of ways, I think a more effective power line than Henry's less subtle just saying the Vexen, which is the kind of crux of part of the complaint is that the Vexen or Vexen is Alice's dowry. And uh, since she has not been married, there's a question of what's supposed to happen with her dowry if she doesn't in fact get married. And so Henry is just saying, you know, the Vexen's mine. And Philip says, by what authority? And he just says, I, it's got my troops all over it. That makes it mine. Yeah, yeah. That's that's more of that, you know, very masculine, aggressive show of power. Which is very much Henry's style. Very much. But Eleanor saying, you know, I could have been your mother. It, it, it's almost this subversive, almost taking him down to his foundation of his existence, almost. Yes. And I think that contrast is really fascinating for a couple of reasons. It certainly highlights in some ways the battle between them in this particular film. But I also find it really fascinating because it really also for me highlights what a formidable team they would have been back when they were on the same side. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, there's a real combination of tactics being used there that only they could join their forces together. (laughs) They begin attempting to negotiate things pretty quickly, kind of come to a standstill. And uh, Philip, for a time, exits and the intrafamilial battles continue. And Eleanor has yet another great line where she asks, what shall we hang, the holly or each other? It's wonderful. And then there's such relish in the way that Catherine Hepburn is delivering this dialogue. Yes. I mean, she also then, after the boys leave, says, uh, I have a confession. Henry asks, yeah. And she goes, I don't much like our children. <laughs> I love that line. I I mean, I love it for so many reasons. For one thing, it's just kind of funny and almost unexpected. But it's also, I mean, probably likely true for a lot of parents. You don't have to like your kids. No. And the fact that they're your kids doesn't actually make them more likable. No, not at all. I mean, (laughs) frankly, it might mean that you fucked up a little bit. But there's kind of this freeing quality of her admitting, I don't much like our children. Yes, it's very satisfying in a lot of ways. And I also find it a really interesting contrast to some of the portrayals that you see that really very much emphasize that Richard is her favorite. And I think this film also really focuses on the fact that even though that's somewhat true, her relationship with Richard is also not uncomplicated. And it's also, I think, part of the issue is Richard might be her favorite, but that might not be because she genuinely genuinely likes him, which as we know now, she does not like her children. Um, But having more to do of what can this relationship with Richard do for her? And the fact that essentially she has selected him in advance as her favorite and arguably very much made a calculated choice that there was a child who was the child who was probably going to be designated to eventually receive her lands and that this is the child that she essentially grooms as her favorite and grooms as her heir as opposed to Henry's heir. Right. It's completely strategic and 
honestly, I love the ambition. So he is initially, he is the second born. So I'll talk about more of the kind of context later, but they had a, he's technically the third son, but their first one, William died when he was relatively young. So their oldest son who survived to adulthood, Henry, died relatively shortly before the events of this film. And then Richard was the second oldest boy. And the assumption very much was for a long time that Henry gets the English crown and Richard gets Aquitaine. And so that probably is part of the backdrop of the assumption that as second born son, he is her heir. Yeah, yeah. Henry begins to talk as they go out then about how he has rather enjoyed living in the context of peace and that he is a bit worried that now that there is a young king on the throne of France, he will suddenly want war, which Louis Eleanor's ex-husband very much did not. And Eleanor hears him out and then quietly drops the bombshell on him that if Alice does not marry Richard, she is going to make sure that Henry loses the Vexen. And I think that she is quite, again, I think regal at this moment and just very confident in her own power. I don't think she has a single moment in this film where she is not regal. Even when she cries, there is a regal quality to it. I mean, there's something in the posture and the delivery of the lines that she gives where, I mean, there's not a single moment where you don't believe that this woman is in charge. And that you always think that she knows what she's doing. I'm not sure I ever have a moment where I 100% believe that she has lost, or at least that she has lost for very long. No, and she always seems to have some kind of, of, of sense of what's to come. She's, she's, Always a few steps ahead of everyone else. So Henry, very briefly at least at this point, agrees to name Richard as his heir, allow the marriage between Richard and his mistress, and indicates that the reason for this is that even though John is his favorite, he knows that John's not going to be able to hold the lands against his brother, which he is almost certainly correct about. John is not very pleased with this turn of events. Richard is suspicious because he does not believe that his father is actually going to give him something as opposed to making him fight for it. And Alice is also furious because she is being treated as a pawn and says that this makes her dangerous, which is something that is not entirely borne out over the course of the events of the film, I would say. No, but at least she's aware enough to know that she's a pawn. And I think she also represents a really interesting contrast with Eleanor as the precisely two women in the movie in that... She is somebody who, in terms of the of her position and her status, is somebody who, under different circumstances, could have been potentially rather powerful, but who has in many ways, by the kind of circumstances surrounding her marriage, been very much disempowered. And that does present a good contrast. I mean, like you said, she's not, she's not always likable. Most of the time she's not likable, but the contrast is definitely worth having there. And also in particular with having to do with uh, the kind of use of the Vexen, which is her dowry, I believe that Eleanor can take the Vexen away from Henry. I don't believe that Alice can, despite the fact that it is technically her property. Yeah, I don't think she, I don't quite think she would have the fortitude to be able to launch something like that, or to actually see it through. Yeah, and I think she would, I don't think she would have the faintest idea of how to go about doing it in the first place, which... Eleanor clearly would. Absolutely, yeah. John is very upset. Uh, He starts complaining, uh, if I went up in flames, there's not a living soul that would pee on me to put it out. To which Richard snarkily responds, let's take up a flint and see. (laughs) (laughs) 
Jeffrey attempts to switch sides at this point, seeing that being on John's side and uh, being kind of John's potential chancellor is not quite as good of a deal potentially as it looked to be a couple of hours ago. And Eleanor, meanwhile, attempts to improve her relationship with Richard, which has been somewhat conflicted in the last few years, especially because they have not really seen much of one another. And this is an odd scene in a lot of ways. She does very much certainly come off as manipulative, although in a way that honestly is rather impressive. And there are also moments in which I find it a bit creepy and that there's something about the way that she is kind of grasping him that makes the whole scene come off as a tiny bit Oedipal in terms of the visuals. Yeah, actually, when I read your notes on that, I really wished that Catherine Hepburn had done Oedipus, the play. Yeah, she would have been fantastic as uh, Jocasta's. Because that that play is just so centered on Oedipus. I think that if you had someone like Catherine Hepburn playing Jocasta, that would have been the star of the play, finally. So, yeah. 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 So, and it is an interesting relationship, and it is a little, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's an uncomfortable that I not necessarily enjoy, but can appreciate for what it brings to this story. I think it really does highlight the extent to which she has complicated and weird relationships with her children, which in a lot of ways makes sense in the context of your relationships with your children being so bound up with money and power in the context of a royal family that honestly, it's a shock if any of them have normal parent-child relationships. Yeah, I think probably the most normal would be if there's a kid who doesn't stand to inherit anything. Nothing to gain, nothing to lose. I think she says the line is, uh, I wanted poetry and power in the young men who create them both. I wanted Henry too in those days. Now I want just one thing, to see you king. And that's probably true, but it's because her him being king is about her legacy. And that, I think, for her to be concerned with her legacy in that way is really a fascinating dynamic. And I would I would really like at some point for something to delve into that. That is something, once again, that I think you're not used to seeing women concerned with their legacy, concerned with their family line in the same way as you see men having those concerns, especially in medieval set pieces. And for somebody like her, there's no reason to think she wouldn't be. Right. And I mean, the whole conversation in this movie is who's going to inherit what, and that is speaking directly to Henry's legacy in terms of John or Richard. And it's so common that I think we take for granted that of course men will be concerned with their legacy, what they leave behind, what their lineage is. It's so refreshing to see it from a woman because we're not used to seeing that kind of ambition and that concern with having that kind of a form of immortality from women. Especially when you are talking about these powerful dynastic representatives, there is no reason to think that women in the medieval world did not have those kinds of concerns. And she in particular is somebody who is the, and she was the heiress of her father and therefore the ruler of Aquitaine. And she belongs to a long line of men who have quite the impressive reputation, that these are men who are known to include troubadours among them, that this is quite the impressive lineage and one that there is no reason to think she does not take quite a bit of pride in, and that ultimately she too wants someone to succeed her. Absolutely. And if she's gaining, you know, the respect and the loyalty of all of her lords, as we talked about earlier, to the point where they won't really recognize either of her husbands, then clearly she is the one 
from whom this legacy stems. Yes, absolutely. Jeffrey, meanwhile, is scheming with Philip. Eleanor, oh, also Eleanor, by the way, has does manage to get what she wants, which is to convince Richard to give the Aquitaine back to her, which will come up shortly. And Jeffrey is scheming with Philip to have himself made king. So thus far, it's, there's been a decent amount of nobody ever thinks about Jeffrey as a possible king. And here Jeffrey is apparently thinking about Jeffrey as a possible king. And then plans to use John now as a pawn in this new plan to get him to betray his father and then start a war. Henry then convinces Eleanor to give him the Aquitaine so he can give it to John in exchange for her freedom. And uh, this is something that is understandable in a lot of ways, that she would like to no longer be imprisoned in various towers. That's fair. Yeah, but is also something that you can see what a hard decision it is for her in particular, because, again, as we were saying, this is about her legacy, and I don't think she wants John ruling the Aquitaine. No. (laughs) They're not going to accept Louis or Henry II as their lord. They're not going to accept her sniveling little son. No. And in fact, once John is king and eventually gets basically everything, they're not entirely fond of him. So she's not wrong. Given every fictional portrayal I have ever seen of John, I don't blame them. But of course, that's every fictional portrayal I have seen of John. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I will say they are certainly exaggerated. And John has undergone somewhat of a kind of improved reputation recently. But John was indeed not especially popular, certainly. And there is presumably some reason for that. Okay. He does not seem to have been as able as Richard, for instance, to inspire love in others. I guess I would say. You know, it, it, it is an important quality in a leader. I guess I would say he doesn't necessarily have those leadership skills per se, that the improvement in his reputation recently has been about the fact that he's a better administrator than people give him credit for, but that he was not necessarily a leader exactly. Okay, that, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Eleanor agrees to give Henry the Aquitaine, She also at this point starts just really fucking with him by claiming that she has slept with both Thomas Beckett and Henry's father, Jeffrey, the latter of which was in fact a rumor that was going around at the time. Uh, Yeah, I did. I did read that, actually. I mean, I would be shocked if she had slept with Thomas Beckett. (laughs) Honestly, he doesn't seem like the type. No, he really doesn't. He he doesn't. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if we want to treat Beckett as a prequel to The Lion in Winter, maybe. (laughs) In his very brief days where he caroused before he, yeah, before he got really into the whole uh, being a man of the church thing. Yeah, I mean, because if you have the large personalities of Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn, definitely add the third large personality of Richard Burton. Yes. <laughs> I don't think there's room on the screen for those three. No, which, uh, of course, it is telling in some ways that Eleanor is not much of a character in Beckett. No, she's not. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, later on when we get to another section of this, I'll talk about my feelings about Eleanor's placement in film. So Eleanor then also agrees that she will sign, but on the condition that the wedding between Richard and Alice is held now. Henry at least seems to call her bluff on this and starts running around yelling for a priest or a bishop and for his sons. It for a second seems like everyone's going to actually forget to tell Alice she has to show up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Alice. But as, as 
as uncomfortable as the Oedipal scene between Richard and Eleanor is, this begins the most uncomfortable portion of this movie. Yes, her being literally manhandled to the altar sobbing. Mm-hmm. That's not a great scene. And uh, she then, uh, eventually it turns out, does not in fact have to marry Richard because once Richard finds out that he is put in the position where he effectively is trading away the Aquitaine in return for England and the marriage to Alice, he is not on board with this. And Henry then kind of infuriated, you know, tells Richard that in that case he'll have nothing at all. And people start to storm off. And then there's the deeply uncomfortable scene that I kind of hate where Eleanor asks Henry if she can watch him kiss Alice and then stands there and is crying while they are talking and then embracing and then kissing. And uh, she is tearing up and she's just so badass. And I just want her to be in charge of everything and not to be hurt. Yes. So when I said that that begins a very uncomfortable sequence, that does extend into the kiss and her having to watch the kiss and her being this glutton for punishment in this moment. And you just, yeah, you don't want her to cry at all, but she does it so regally and it's such a great moment from Catherine Hepburn. And I was trying to think of earlier moments in her film career where she had scenes where she cried like that. And I honestly can't think of another scene like that. And I'm pretty positive I have seen every single film that Catherine Hepburn has ever done going from the 1930s into until she finally retired in 1994. But I cannot think of a single scene that really comes close to what the emotion is that she has in this scene. Yeah, I think it might be the best movie crying I've ever seen, to be honest. It's it's pretty damn good. She also then, I would say, really continues to be regal and impressive, even in sorrow, in the next scene where she's uh, she's going through her jewels and kind of talking to herself in the mirror while holding up her jewels next to her. And her sons gradually enter. First, Jeffrey, who wants to talk about the fact that he feels like his parents never loved him. And... Asks Eleanor to tell him why. Yes, I mean, that might be accurate. Yeah, at the very least, I think they're very much making a lot of the fact that Richard kind of has the reputation of being his mother's favorite and John of his father's favorite, which leaves Jeffrey with being neither his favorite, certainly. Right. In terms of this particular story and the way that this story and this family is framed, I think there's certainly something to that of wondering why he is at the very least, the forgotten son. And of course, the fact that even beyond that, that I think there is something to be said for the fact that in a lot of ways, neither of them like any of their children that much. Right. And that that is presumably something that is visible to them. Yeah, I don't think that's going to offer much comfort to Jeffrey. Because while they might not like Richard or John, Richard and John are still in the running to get something. Although, of course, it's uh, kind of ignoring that although nobody's considering Jeffrey for the kingship, he is already the functioning Duke of Brittany. Oh, that doesn't suck. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, and this is something that I was going to talk about a bit later, but uh, there's a line at some point where Henry says, I can't possibly divide up my kingdom. And that's, in fact, always what he had planned to do, is he divvies up his possessions amongst his children. And Brittany came under his control, and Brittany was intended for Geoffrey because he ends up marrying the heiress to Brittany because, for some reason, Henry gets to decide who marries the heiress to Brittany. Okay. Yeah, I have some thoughts on the whole history and movies thing that we can talk about later. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of detail that doesn't necessarily quite in nuance, that doesn't necessarily quite come through in terms of the very complicated soap opera dynamics of this family. <laughs> oh, yeah, so melodramatic. John then comes in to gloat and is followed by Richard, who at some point then suggests that John can't be king if he's dead. 
and starts chasing him around with a knife. Everyone, with the exception of John, seems deeply unconcerned with the fact that Richard seems to at least semi-seriously be trying to murder him. And John yells that he's got a knife, and Eleanor responds, Of course he has a knife. We all have knives. It's 1183, and we're barbarians. Which is obviously anachronistic, but I kind of like it anyway. It's, it's a pretty damn great line. I mean, But it did make me wonder, because the definition of barbarian, historically speaking, is one who does not speak Greek. So now I'm wondering, did anyone in this court speak Greek? They probably wouldn't have spoken Greek, but they probably would have been people who nevertheless thought of themselves as quite cultured and thought of themselves as, and well thought of culture as knowing Latin. And I would say then for somebody like Eleanor, who would have thought of herself as cultured because of her involvement in the troubadour poetic tradition, which is really a kind of vernacular tradition, uh, particularly in Occitan. And so I think she would not have actually thought of herself as a barbarian. She would have thought of herself as the kind of peak of culture. Yeah, yeah. But that's a very different definition of the peak of culture, and almost certainly none of these people know Greek. Okay. John is then actually dumb enough to announce in front of Richard and Eleanor that he had planned a war with Philip and now has to go and, like, fix this. Eleanor immediately seizes on this opportunity, tells Richard to go to Philip and promise anything in exchange for troops, and alone reflects that this is where the knife goes in. And, uh, of course, is quite aware immediately of the impact that John's betrayal will have emotionally on Henry. You know, he's really not helping any argument that he might be an effective leader, John. He really isn't. Yeah. And, of course, he is also the person that loses most of England's French possessions. That's right. He did. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Poor John. The following scene is in Philip's chambers and is essentially a series of people hiding behind curtains. It's very theatrical. Yes. The first bit that we see is uh, Geoffrey coming in and he uh, promises to Philip that he will give all of England's French possessions to Philip in exchange for him being king. John jumps out from behind the curtains and uh, tries to stab Geoffrey, but literally falls over. <laughs> Once again, not doing himself any favors in presenting himself as an able king. Although I will say he is 16 and his brothers are a decent bit older. Yeah, but it really does, does kind of go in line with how I feel he, he was characterized earlier in that he's more of this inept squire type character looking up to these, these more masculine older men who can't quite finish the job, which is, yeah. you know, also kind of going in for more masculine terminology there. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he has a knife and he can't quite get it in. Yeah. <laughs> John is definitely presented as being less masculine and being less competent. It is at this point that then Richard arrives and John and Jeffrey both hide behind curtains. <laughs> uh, which I guess I will say, like, as considering that this was a stage production, that's kind of a classic stage device that you have. You know, it's very Shakespearean. Oh, definitely. And even the scene before it, when Eleanor is, you know, taking off her jewelry and sitting at what is essentially a, a vanity and, her, you know, all of her sons enter, that's very much part of the stage tradition. So this is just carrying that in. And I think that's where the benefit of having the playwright 
adapt his own screenplay is really helping. And I really like that they're allowing those theater conventions to stay. There are several instances where it doesn't always work out in terms of movies. In this case, it works so well. And I think that that's really attributed to who you have playing these parts. Absolutely. But I think also whoever, I I don't know to what extent it's the kind of playwright uh, slash screenwriter, but then also the, I don't actually know who the director is of this or the people who was in charge of the kind of stage and scenery. So Anthony Harvey. Okay. Yeah. I think he also did a great job of making this something that I can watch and I can see in some moments that this is probably how it was staged and that it makes sense as something that was a stage play, but that it doesn't feel in the, in quite that way, like it was just a stage play that now you're filming. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it is very much attributed to Anthony Harvey's direction as well and how well he manages to stage these things. Richard arrives and uh, in addition to promising him anything he wants in exchange for troops, also in a conversation eventually reveals that they have had a past romantic and sexual relationship. And I find this scene so fascinating because at this moment of the scene, I was so struck by the fact that this does a far better job of depicting a gay gay people and a gay relationship than Braveheart, which came out in the 1990s. Braveheart came out in 1995. Braveheart was directed by Mel Gibson, who is an asshole. Well, yeah. So. So. (laughs) Yeah. So not entirely surprising, but actually I will even say also, so Edward II is a historical figure who is, I would say, most often reputed to be gay or to certainly at least have had relationships with men and Richard is somebody that some historians also think that is very possibly the case of but Edward II in famously in Braveheart but also even I would say to some extent in the kind of newer portrayal in Outlaw King which came out just in the last couple of years right he is very much presented as somebody who his sexual orientation is something that then represents in a lot of ways a failure of masculinity or causes a failure of masculinity, that he is then presented as effeminate and incompetent and much like King John in some ways as not as masculine as the other men who are around him. Right. And I think it's really interesting that their relationship, first of all, initially is presented as potentially quite loving and serious and real. On Richard's part, at least, there's certainly no reason to think that it wasn't. But then also that... Richard is somebody who is presented, therefore, as being gay, but also having a very kind of traditional lordly masculinity. And I think that's a really interesting choice. Yeah. So in those other portrayals in both Braveheart and Outlaw King, both of which I have seen, it's the homosexuality in Edward is always treated as if it makes him an ineffective ruler. Yeah. You never doubt that, even with this moment. And it is a smaller moment in terms of the larger story of this film. But it never once takes away from the fact that you doubt that Richard is this very strong masculine leader. It doesn't take away from the jousting scene at the beginning of him almost killing a man. It doesn't take away from the fact that moments ago he was trying to kill his brother. Right. And I think that's really interesting and honestly kind of pleasantly surprising for the 1960s. Yeah, so 67, 68 is a real transition year in terms of making movies and what they can and cannot show. Um, It's a Mm -hmm. really, there's there's even a book about it that I have not actually read about that kind of transition years within film and getting out of both the studio system of the control over films 
and also getting away from the production codes that really affected what could and could not be done. So, and I think yeah. that, that this film might be something of an example of that transition. And so that's really interesting in terms of what they're able to do. And this, I would say, there's nothing that you would call explicit per se, but it is clear to anyone watching very much that this is the relationship that they are talking about, even if there is not explicit physical contact. Yeah, it was not clear to me when I first saw this as, as a very young teenager. Mm-hmm. I think I might have been 13 the first time I saw this. It got really clear on subsequent viewings. I think by the time I saw this, I was already maybe 16 or so and definitely knew exactly what was going on pretty much right away. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's a difference of a few years, but that makes a big yeah. difference in some cases, yeah. <laughs> Henry then arrives. Richard hides behind yet another curtain. <laughs> And uh, Henry then and Philip end up uh, having a conversation about potentially altering the terms of negotiations that Henry had suggested earlier. He begins by saying, I left you with too little earlier. And Philip rather snarkily replies, yes, nothing is too little. (laughs) And that's again, Timothy Dalton's comedic instincts there. This scene has so much of Timothy Dalton's great comedic timing. As they gradually move into what I'm not sure Henry necessarily expected, which is that basically they spend quite a bit of time insulting Philip's late father. Yeah, they do. Um, (laughs) kind of wish that Eleanor had been there for it since she knew him well. (laughs) And there's this in particular kind of fantastic moment where Henry says to Philip something like, be like your father and love and love better men. And then Philip says, no wonder my father loved everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but what's interesting about that though, and Philip's view of his own father is the dynamics between father and sons that's going on between Henry and then Richard and John and Jeffrey. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, here's how Philip views his father now dead. Philip has, has inherited his, his kingdom. And here's maybe a glimpse of what could happen for whoever ends up inheriting Henry's kingdom as well. Right. How is him, how is he and his legacy going to be talked about to other, other monarchs, other people in the future by whichever of his sons ultimately succeeds him? Yes. How will his eventual heir be having this eventual conversation? And of course, also this definitely plays into the kind of prevailing historiography surrounding the French kings where indeed Louis the seventh is seen as fundamentally a weak king and uh, Philip as one that kind of reversed that trend and in particular reversed the balance of power between England and France mm-hmm. so that's very much kind of something that you see Philip then as part of this conversation then tells Henry about his relationship with Richard in terms very different from how he and Richard talked about it before where he presents it very much as something predatory which on the one hand a part of me is really sad that it then took this turn from a gay relationship that was presented in quite a positive way but on the other hand if you actually think about the ages when the whole thing ostensibly took place Philip would have been 16 and Richard I think 24 which is in itself questionable in terms of an age difference at that young age, although it's not one that would have been in common in, say, a marriage between a man and a woman in the medieval world. No, but there are different power dynamics between two men that way. And it's it's, it's yeah. a very, it, minimally, it is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. There's a book about sodomy in Reformation Germany and Switzerland that actually talks a little bit about those those power dynamics. I don't think the scholar who wrote it does a really particularly great job of talking about issues of consent or questions of consent in that. Mm-hmm. But it did actually remind me of that because, I mean, a 16-year-old boy 
and a 24-year-old man. It, it, essentially, we're looking at, if we were to maybe reverse this, Philip taking advantage of John. Because yeah. John is supposed to be that age at the time that this is taking place. And John is presented very much as somebody who is a child and who you would question whether he is really consenting if something like that happened. Yes, very much so. So, I mean, it, it's... It's a little sad that they, they took, you know, this positive portrayal of homosexuality that we thought we had a couple of minutes ago. But I think it does present an interesting dynamic in terms of power structures and power relationships to kind of turn it into this. I do think that yeah. the reaction that Richard has to it is very telling to how he views their relationship. And it's I think it's a wonderful moment from Anthony Hopkins. Yes, and he's really genuinely quite sad and hurt and you really see those emotions playing on his face, first while he's still behind the curtain, and then when he uh, comes out shortly to confront Philip and his father. Yeah. And, I, and uh, you really feel for him in this moment. It, it's very heartbreaking for him. And I will also say, I believe he actually tears up a bit. And uh, once again, I think this is also really interesting in that you are seeing a man slightly crying over his relationship with another man. And I don't think that it is actually undermining his masculinity. None whatsoever. And it's not just that you see a man crying over his relationship with another man. You see a man crying who has essentially been established as the most manly of the men other than yeah. Henry. And that never changes. Right. I mean, you know, he's this huge bulking figure. He has facial hair. You know, the way they present him as is as this gruff, manly man. And I mean, he does tear up and it's, it's really actually quite beautiful. And I think a really nice yeah. kind of parallel to Eleanor crying a few minutes earlier yes. in that scene, because you kind of see there she was crying. She's supposed to be this very, very uh, strong figure of regalness. And here is her favorite crying as well. And I think it's worth noting that tears are not a weakness. And I think yes. this shows that really well. I don't know if they intended it to, but that's how I'm taking it, is that they're showing, you know, crying does not make one weak. Yeah, which I absolutely love, and I love that they do that, and I love that they do that. They're having having both a woman and a man crying over people hurting and betraying them. Yeah, they're both crying over heartbreak. Yeah. I mean, he's not crying over the death of a comrade or a horse. He's crying over yeah. lost love. And of uh, yeah, lost love, and also really somebody, you know, betraying a, you know, a lover who has betrayed his trust. And done it in a really cruel way, because Philip yeah. knew that... Richard was behind that curtain. Yes, he did. And that's, it's so, it's so sad. Uh, way to twist the knife in. Yep. Jeffrey then pops up, mostly in response to being ignored. And then <laughs> shortly after, reveals that John too is here. John reveals his true lack of love for his father. His especially striking line is that his father said, you're just like, like, why couldn't you just be patient? I was going to make sure you got everything. And he responds, when can I have it, daddy? Not till we bury you. Which all of a sudden really sorts of sort of kind of outs him as this almost creepy, unloving sociopath. And very different from at least his father's image of him before, if not necessarily entirely different from our image of him. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's oh, sociopathic, but infantile at the same time. Yes. And the fact that the choice that he calls him daddy. Yeah, I will say. It's quite deliberate. Yes. And in this moment, you know just how much fun Nigel Terry is having. Oh, absolutely. So Jeffrey then presents himself as the king candidate of desperation, which his father is less than on board with and uh, gives at this point what is probably his most uh, kind of dramatic and effective monologue 
about how uh, his life will tell better than it was lived. uh, And uh, this kind of leads into a story about how he is retelling his own life and his legacy, which ends with him saying that he had no sons. I guess he had three whiskered things, but he disowned them. I will say the kind of pain of the fact that he feels that he has lost his sons uh, does seem real, even if... I can't say I find him likable in this moment or in subsequent ones. No, and it's, it is a very kind of almost touching moment that he's a, this guy who's frankly not likable, who's fucking around and dicking around with everyone. Yep. Is uh, that he actually is hurt by this lack of love from his sons and the fact that he is now faced with a choice of what to do with them. Yes. And there aren't and, really good choices yeah. here. Yeah, and... I also love that in this moment where Henry is walking around in his pain, there is in the background on the stairs, this poor greyhound who wanders down and is kind of whining and clearly just wants someone to pet him. And Henry is, of course, too concerned with himself to pat the dog. And, you know, that dog was trying to make him feel better. No, that is the real tragedy of this story. Exactly. <laughs> that the dog's just saying, like, your sons don't love you, but I love you. Henry would not pet the dog who was so willing to give his love. Exactly. It's really the saddest part. <laughs> it is. <laughs> That dog loves you far more just by virtue of really being a dog than any of the human in this movie. That's very true. <laughs> he kind of briefly looks in on Alice because he might have lost his sons, but I guess he still has the child that he's fucking, but then decides that that's not what he's in the mood for right now and wanders off. Eleanor, however, then goes in to talk to Alice. And uh, this is the kind of big scene where you really see uh, Alice's jealousy and resentment of Eleanor and uh, her insistence on kind of seeing this as a competition between the two of them, despite the fact that in a lot of ways, that's not how Eleanor sees it queer. No, Eleanor is not playing this game at all, because Eleanor knows she doesn't have to play this game. Yes, which is fascinating. And you really see the difference between uh, these two women, which comes from a lot of things, including their histories, the fact that Eleanor is, of course, much older, that she is somebody who has been very confident in her power her entire life and uh, that Alice is not that person and that Alice essentially doesn't know what she wants other than that she has this relationship with Henry that matters to her, which in its own way is also kind of very sad that she is somebody who has let herself be reduced to that or who has by circumstances been reduced to that. And she is very much defined by her relationship to him and what he decides to do with her. Whereas even though Eleanor in many ways still loves Henry and a lot of her life is connected to her relationship to her husband and her relationships with her sons, they do not define her at all in the same way. Oh gosh, not at all. That's that's never coming into her characterization, which is really quite remarkable. Yeah. I will say, there is a moment in this scene where they are talking about whether Eleanor murdered Henry's previous lover, Rosamond Clifford, which if you take just text and not subtext of the fact that obviously Henry is involved in their conversations in some ways, technically might pass the Bechdel test. Maybe. It might. Um, yeah, I just... If you're going by the lowest possible bar of essentially that there is a two-line exchange between the two women where men are not mentioned, it technically passes. I mean, the Bechdel test in and of itself is kind of the lowest bar that we have. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think the Ifdecker test actually might be the lowest bar. <laughs> in this in this terms of this conversation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, the Bechdel test is very much imperfect and a low bar. And the fact that it passes, if this is a pass, it is not an impressive one in that they are literally talking about one woman murdering another. And it is ultimately over jealousy over a man. Yes. So it, it, it's, it's murder over a man. Yeah. So I, yeah. to be fair to the Bechdel test, I'm pretty sure that Alison Bechdel knows that that is a very low bar. Oh, absolutely. I think the really interesting thing about the Bechdel test is that I think she almost intended it as such. And I think she realized that it was something that it's not that it pa- that a movie passing makes it a feminist movie or anything along those lines, is that it's such a low bar and it's so shocking despite that, that so few films pass. Yeah, oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and there's a there's a podcast I love called the Bechdel cast, which very much is aware of that as being a very low bar, but, you know, uses this as a jumping off point and has a number of cases where they're very much aware of the fact that there are these kind of marginal passes that in some ways even highlight the extent to which this is very much not a movie is very much not a feminist film. And this movie, I will say, even though this is quite a marginal pass, I'm not sure per se if I would necessarily call this a feminist film, but it is certainly very much a film that is largely about a powerful woman who is presented positively. Yeah, I mean, and it is a refreshing change from what we, you know, were seeing in that era. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of a few more other forward-thinking films from that from that era. I mean, certainly Catherine Hepburn in many of the characters she played, which I think attributes to her upbringing. I mean, her mother campaigned for birth control alongside Margaret Sanger. She grew up with that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it, I, I would not call it a feminist film but it certainly it, it does a lot with what it has it, it makes the most out of that character and I think that it respects the character yes which is very refreshing in a lot of ways in that there are so many films including more recent films set in the medieval world that do not respect their female characters that do not at all respect the agency of their female characters and if nothing else this is very much a movie about a powerful woman with agency I mean clearly you mean King Arthur Legend of the Sword. Well, my, my personal hate list is uh, also still Kingdom of Heaven is still uh, has a kind of special place in my heart for the movie that makes a real medieval woman have less agency than she had in the Middle Ages. Oh. In terms you know, of you would think that Ridley Scott, the director who got us Ellen Ripley in Alien, would know better. You really would think that, yes. So uh, Henry returns and Alice leaves and he and Eleanor speak in private. And it turns out that Henry's plan now in his fury over his sons is that he is going to get a new wife who will bear him sons, uh, to which Eleanor responds, that is the single thing of which I would have thought you had enough. Which is another great line. (laughs) Yes, and as they both kind of go on to insult their assorted sons, indicating once again these people do not like their children. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Henry suggests that he will essentially be able to kind of have new sons who will be better. I don't know what gives him any reason to think that. You know, they're they're still going to be raised by the same father. Yep, and I suppose a different mother... Not that I think that's necessarily a plus. No, no. (laughs) So this is also one of the lines where they're then kind of talking about their relationship. And this is a moment where Eleanor says, I adored you. And Henry says, never. And she says, I still do. And he responds, of all the lies, that is the most terrible. And she says, I know that's why I saved it up till now. And that's 
Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And they actually kiss and embrace at this moment. And even though watching this and knowing that this is not an end to their problems or a permanent reconciliation, there is still something so beautiful about that moment and about the awareness of the fact that they clearly have such a strong relationship and so much real chemistry, despite a long history of hurting each other. It's an honest moment. Yes. I mean, everything about it is honest, beginning with her telling that lie and him acknowledging the lie and her never even trying to cover for it, saying, yeah, no, I saved this for last. 100% an honest moment in a movie where many of their interactions have not been honest in any way. Yes. Especially with their their children. And as she goes on, she then eventually is also very honest about what her plan is surrounding his whole annulment idea, which is that annulments take time and she will delay and she is capable of delaying. And in fact, it, you know, it took years for her and Louis to get their annulment once Eleanor started suggesting it. Wasn't it denied at first? Yes, it was denied at first. They had a quite public reconciliation where the Pope basically literally brought them into bed. <laughs> and I believe I believe the second child was born after that. So this was a Band-Aid baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it took years for that annulment to actually happen. And as she says, and she is quite right, it's going to take years for this annulment to happen. There's no guarantee of immediate sons after that or of those sons living to adulthood. And that's very much going to potentially be putting them in a situation where Henry and Alice's future child, whom she also gratuitously insults as being a kind of, you know, particularly puny because Henry conceived him in old age... (laughs) (laughs) and uh, she then points out the fact that that kid does not stand a chance against her adult sons who have a better claim to the throne in an environment where primogeniture has been accepted as reasonable and where everyone is very much aware that these annulments are political and not a real sign that a marriage is invalid and the children are illegitimate. Right. And I think for Henry, obviously, it's a temper tantrum plan. And it's not something I don't think that there is necessarily super clear indication that this was a real thing that he necessarily planned to do. Right. Because it's a dumb plan, to be honest. Yeah. Especially when you also take into account the fact that him annulling this marriage has impacts beyond his sons. Their daughters, who are quite absent in the film, are absent because most of them by this point have been married off and are the wives of very important men, including many monarchs in Europe. Yeah, and that, that so that is one thing that I wish they could have maybe mentioned that they have daughters. Yeah, she kind of very briefly refers to the fact that she has given birth to five sons and six daughters. Right. And that is the only mention of them. Yeah, because I was looking it up and I was looking up, you know, Eleanor's issue and I thought, good God, she spent a lot of time pregnant. Yes, Philip's son, Louis, also named Louis, would go on to marry a woman named Blanche, who is Eleanor's granddaughter. So keeping it in the family. Uh Uh-huh. And she would then turn out to then be the regent after her husband dies and quite a powerful figure in the reign of her own son. Good for her. Who was also named Louis. (laughs) (laughs) You know, eventually they have to get to the 17th Louis. Are they 18 by the end of the revolution? Yes, I believe so. 
Yeah. So, I mean, they have to get through a lot of Louis. Exactly. So they, uh, they get through a lot of them relatively soon. <laughs> so this is not necessarily the best plan. And uh, Eleanor, again, kind of makes it very clear that that child is not going to do super well. Henry insists that Eleanor would never let Richard kill the child, to which she acerbically responds, let him, I'd push him through the nursery door. <laughs> you know, it's another great line. She never lets up. Yeah. And... You know, I will say I kind of appreciate that there is a portrayal of a woman who doesn't have this very kind of automatic maternal instinct and insistence upon the kind of inviolability of children as people who are a threat. Right. And it's it's in service of her legacy again. Yeah. Because that child would be a threat to the legacy that she is protecting for herself. Exactly. And uh, you very rarely see women being so open about being willing to do something like that. And when you do see them so open, they are usually both historically and in the present vilified for it. Whereas you see a number of men being quite willing to do the same thing who are far less likely to be treated in quite the same way as opposed to there being a pragmatic acknowledgement of the fact that they have no other choice. Right, there's that double standard. Eleanor threatens to start a war with all three of her sons banded together. Henry in response basically says, you shouldn't have told me that, so now I'm going to lock up the boys. <laughs> and... Uh, Eleanor, at the very least, as a solid parting shot, throws in a kind of further discussion of her at least allegedly remembering having sex with his dad. <laughs> really going for the jugular there. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you kind of appreciate her, at least, if she feels that she is lost, at the very least, she's going to hurt him. Yeah. Oh, no. She she never gives any ground. Yeah. Henry locks up his sons from the dungeon, makes a plan, makes plans to leave for Rome, and goes to tell Alice about his plan. Alice is, I will say, to her credit, smart enough to realize quite quickly what Eleanor had also realized, that that child will essentially no longer be safe, if she's being honest, as long as Richard and the other boys are alive. But what she says is that they can never be let out again and Henry seems to go down initially to indeed tell them that they will be in that dungeon forever. Eleanor meanwhile has quite quickly managed to get someone to take her down to the dungeon with a chest that we will very quickly see contains three daggers and has her man kill the guard who is on duty. It's such a wonderfully lame fight scene. Yes. It's so weak and I kind of love that about it. So like I said earlier, we have two action-y type of scenes here. We have the yeah. first one with, with Henry and John combat practice together. And then we have this. And it's so almost half-assed in how it's executed that you can tell yeah. they don't care about the action in this movie. They care about the characterization and the story. And that's wonderful. And I will say, though, the other thing about that scene is that I think it actually strikes me as also in a way rather realistic that you're talking about two people who are probably relatively evenly matched, but who are, when it comes down to it, people who are kind of hired guards. They're not the great swordsmen of their age. And in general, probably medieval sword fighting was often perhaps less elegant looking than we think it is. Oh, I'm sure those swords are heavy. Yeah, and they're fighting at very close quarters. It makes sense that honestly, this isn't an impressive or exciting fight. This is the kind of thing that, that you know, happens relatively often that you just kind of need to fight against somebody in these kind of close quarters in the dark and that you really just need to kill them. Yeah, yeah. And that... it's not glorious or exciting. Yeah, because I think in most times when we see a fight in some kind of 
depiction of the medieval historical era, it, it's meant for glorification, for some yeah. higher purpose. There's dramatic music. Yes. I mean, and this movie does have some very dramatic music. But not in this scene. <laughs> not in this scene, no. Eleanor is then able to go into the dungeon. She gives the boys their daggers and tells them that they're able to leave. They quickly realize that, to be honest, the better plan is that Henry's about to come down and they should kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Which Eleanor is not on board for, but they're not wrong. No, they're not. And of course, that this is also in many ways the natural result of the way in which these kids have been raised, that these are kids who both Richard and Jeffrey have previously been in rebellion against their father and have faced him on a battlefield. Yeah, they I mean, they're certainly indicative of their environment. And I I think I mentioned something about that earlier in terms of kind of the entitlement of Richard being in a position to potentially kill that man during a joust of John basically being able to suck at sword fighting and that being Mm -hmm. okay and him constantly being told he's doing well yeah so i mean they they are the movie i think does a really nice job of showing how these three men are a product of the environment in which they were raised very much i think one of the interesting things is that you know richard initially is hesitant and he's not hesitant for real ethical reasons about killing his father he's hesitant because it's not in accordance with certain kinds of chivalric norms to assassinate someone in the dark which i think also speaks again to his characterization as someone who's very manly because that kind of sense of chivalric honor would have been associated with him as a man. Exactly. And that's very much the way in which he tends to be viewed quite positively by his contemporaries and by a number of later historians as somebody who had a very clear idea, in particular in the context of the Crusades and when fighting against his Muslim opponents, at least the high status ones, of still adhering to those chivalric values and of being somebody who ultimately was fair and that there's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that because of that, he and Saladin, who is his enemy in the context of the Crusades, of them having a mutual respect for one another in part because of that. So some respect for Muslims in the Crusades. I mean, despite the fact that he then slaughtered a bunch of Muslim prisoners, but they weren't noble, so. Oh, And that, I would say, tends to be what Richard is probably known for in general, is that he was, in fact, quite brutal, but that he had a this very kind of particular idea about chivalric ideals, which include a very particular set of rules surrounding the treatment of people who are of a certain status. Yeah. And that his behavior was governed by that and not by what we would perhaps treat, consider as ethical today. <laughs> yeah. Henry does arrive and... Uh, Initially, Richard does attack his father, but ultimately seems unable to go through with it. Henry then sentences them to death and also then proves unable ultimately to go through with it. He ends up kind of striking Richard on the shoulder with the flat of his blade. And Jeffrey eventually kind of realizes that, all right, this isn't happening. We're basically safe, but we're not that safe. He just takes off. (laughs) John takes off after him. And once again, I think indicating that Richard is the one who really is the kind of representative of traditional masculinity in a lot of ways. Richard walks off quite slowly and deliberately. He's the only one of the three who is not literally fleeing. And I think that because following the way the sword hits him, it almost looks like an anointing. Yeah, which is, of course quite interesting given that he is still therefore you know presumptively his father's heir for lack of necessarily better options right 
Alice, meanwhile, is still just kind of standing there. But You know, what else is she going to do at this point? She could run. She could, yes. At this point, she really just kind of becomes irrelevant as in the last moments of the story, it really is very much about Eleanor and Henry. Mm-hmm. Henry, who, by the way, says, I want no women in my life. I could have conquered Europe, all of it, but I had women in my life. To which I, I think, audibly actually said, fuck off. <laughs> In part because I don't think, in honest and all honesty, that he would have been anywhere near as successful without the support of first his mother and then his wife. Right. I mean, that, that <laughs> marriage was very advantageous to him. It was very advantageous both because of her lands, but also because of her and the extent to which she was a powerful figure and a real ally for him. Of course, it's his mother and the fact that his mother essentially refused to stop fighting when his mother actually should have been Queen of England. Her father was king. And the barons basically refused to accept her because she was a woman, uh, despite the fact that I believe that her father had indicated that he wanted her to be his heir. And she lost out to a cousin. And it is, in fact, because she basically refused to keep fighting, even though eventually she started fighting on behalf of her son and not herself, that Henry was able to ultimately become king of England, as opposed to just being Count of Anjou, his inheritance from his father. So basically, he is the product of powerful women, and he's mad about it a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) which is some nice classic toxic masculinity. Yeah. (laughs) She's so glad we don't deal with that anymore. Oh, yeah. Really, really glad that ended in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor and Henry finally end as she is being sent back to Salisbury Tower. She is not going to be allowed to remain out. And she asks, you'll let me out for Easter. And he says, come the resurrection, you can strike me down again. Says, perhaps I'll do it. And he says, and perhaps you won't. And he kind of shouts after her as she is once again on her boat on a throne. You know, I hope we never die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that it's an, it's a, first of all, it's a great line to close out, you know, a series of really great lines. It book ends really nicely with her entrance and asking, you know, did the seas part? But it also really speaks to the issues of legacy that are in this movie. Yes, that both of them are deeply concerned about that ultimately and are very much aware of the fact that they are, you know, in their older years and that they are going to die sometime in the not too distant future in the grand scheme of things, at least that they are certainly more than halfway through their lives and that this is something that they are thoughtful about. They're thoughtful about while also striving for a certain kind of immortality and even saying, Mm -hmm. I hope we never die. I mean, I think he quite literally means Henry and Eleanor, but the whole point of a legacy is that something lives on and something continues to the point where if we can trace every monarch in in England since Eleanor of Aquitaine back to Eleanor of Aquitaine, that's essentially living on in some respects. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, they do have exactly the legacy that they might have, both of them in a lot of ways have exactly the legacy ultimately that they might have wanted. Yeah, definitely. And of course, the fact that they are both people whose stories are told and who are relatively positive, both of them are relatively positively remembered as successful rulers. Yeah, I mean, we're stories have been made about them for centuries. I mean, this movie was made 51 years ago. Here we are still talking about it today. Yes. And even looking in terms of their legacy, even, you know, a, reass- a historical reassessment of John is part of that. Yes, that ultimately, you might think that the fact that John then ended up being there heir and the person through whom the line was continued as being negative but even though john is of course in many ways was not the strongest ruler there 
are also as, as, yeah, as we said, ways in which his legacy too is being reassessed and that matters. And especially in terms of if he's being reassessed for, uh, reassessed for his more administrative qualities and his successes in, in terms of administering kingdom, I, I don't want to totally attribute it to who his parents were, frankly, and mostly I don't have the historical background to do so, but it does feel like something that he, he carries on what their legacy was in terms of especially how she was able to administer her land. Yeah, I would say those are very much skills that both of his parents had, that uh, this is something that's only vaguely hinted at in the film, but that ultimately one of the reasons Henry is remembered positively as a king isn't entirely because of his military his military successes. It's largely because he ended up being quite a competent administrator and being somebody who very much kind of changed the face of English common law. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're like, they did not die. They, it carries yeah. on. So. On that note of kind of telling their story into the future, we're going to move into another couple of segments where we'll talk about how successfully this did tell their story. The first part of that is a segment you call Vera et Falso, or in other words, what did they get right and what did they get wrong? And this is a section where I'm going to be doing a decent amount of slightly nitpicky bits. First of all, I will say in terms of things they got right, there is a lot that is correct about the general historical context, although other things that are not quite right. And the next segment, we'll discuss that in more detail. In terms of other things, and again, this is on the nitpicky side that they got right, the stone capitals that you see in the opening credit look vaguely Romanesque, which is the appropriate style for the time period. And the castle architecture, I don't think is actually the fortress built by Henry at Chinon does also look vaguely period appropriate. So they filmed it in Ireland. It's some Irish castle. Oh, huh. and I think it actually, yeah, so it probably is another Norman castle, which is what Chinon would have been and what Old Sarum would have been. So they did a pretty good job on the architecture. They also did an okay job on that dramatic music at the beginning. <laughs> I caught enough of the Latin that I was able to then look it up and identify it as a 6th century hymn attributed to St. Columba. Because it's 6th century and a kind of saint who's well known in the British Isles, it's very possibly a hymn that would have been familiar to the characters in this film. And the Latin is even pretty much right. That's actually impressive. Yeah. And the lyrics, when then translated into English, are, I would say, thematically in some ways on the right track. So the translation of the stanzas that are sung in the film are the day of the Lord is nigh, the day of the most righteous, the day of wrath and vengeance, of darkness and shadow, a day, the day of the most righteous king of kings, and the day of marvelous strong thunderings, even the day of despair, of sorrow and misery, the day of the most righteous king of kings. So that emphasis on wrath and vengeance and sorrow and misery certainly refers to a lot of things in a lot of ways that happens in this movie. But of course, the original hymn is about Judgment Day, not Christmas of 1183, and the king in question is Jesus, not Henry II. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are some kings who thought they were. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and Henry might have been one of them. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting that it actually got right is a number of cultural references. First of all, this is something that we kind of touched on before, but there are a number of classical references with Eleanor being described by Henry as Medusa 
and uh, by her son Richard as Medea. And so these are, of course, figures within Greek mythology and vilified women in Greek mythology. Yeah. And these are real references that would have been quite familiar to a medieval audience, due in particular to the fact that, although they wouldn't have been reading the Greek versions, Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is the Latin, a Latin retelling of a lot of these Greek myths, right. is quite popular during this period. And so these very much would have been familiar references. So Henry refers to King Lear when saying that he couldn't dry, uh, could not divide up his kingdom as Lear had. And so I did look this up, since of course King Lear as a figure is known to most people today via Shakespeare, but Shakespeare, in fact, took it from the, probably from the writings of Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was active in the early 12th century, dying just about a year after Henry took the English throne. However, although Henry brings him up to discuss the fact that he can't divide up his empire, that was exactly what he was doing. So it's not necessarily the best example in some ways. There is, however, also a cultural reference that they don't quite get right, which is the comment that I think Philip asks, uh, what if angels sat on pinheads, kind of mockingly as a, you know, this is a, what if these are pointless debates. The how many angels sit on the head of a pin is a quite famous medieval uh, element, kind of discussion of medieval scholastic theology uh, referenced in Good Omens recently. <laughs> so uh, this debate although frequently referenced as a kind of as an element of medieval scholastic theology isn't actually found in any extant written text of medieval scholastic theology and seems to have been basically something that they came up with in the early modern period to make fun of medieval scholastic theology. And of course, the other issue is that medieval scholasticism is not necessarily quite the most current thing in the 12th century, as most of the great figures of scholasticism, including most famously Thomas Aquinas, are in the 13th century, so about a, about a full century, in fact, after the events of this film. Okay. We're a bit off on our yeah. scholasticism as a cultural reference. Yeah. They, they've done okay so far with their references, though. Yeah, and I think the fact that they get a lot of their cultural references right is overall pretty impressive. It is. It's actually, it's really impressive. Especially because I think there's often an assumption that that people in the Middle Ages aren't necessarily familiar with classical literature and with those kind of classical reference. Well, I mean, like I asked earlier, you know, would any anyone then have spoken Greek? I mean, that was just me making an offhand comment about Eleanor saying that they were barbarians, but I mean, it, it did raise the question for me, you know, how familiar were they with, with Greek? Yeah, and so, you know, I think that's nice that, as I said, you know, as I was saying before, even though they wouldn't have spoken Greek, they're very much familiar with a lot of uh, Greek stories and Greek texts, although via Latin, and this is, I think, a really good example of that, and I like that they really kind of bring up the fact that this is a cultural referent that is very important and useful for medieval elites. Yeah, yeah. The... Other thing that I wanted to note that is off is Henry's line, I'm the oldest man I know, I've got a decade on the Pope. <laughs> so first of all, it is inaccurate on, so it's inaccurate on a couple of counts. First of all, he does not have a decade on the Pope. Henry is 50 in 1183. The Pope at the time, Lucius III, would have been in his early 80s. Do you want to be older than the Pope? Not if the Pope's in his early 80s now. Yeah. <laughs> But I think the reason behind the line, in addition to the fact that presumably they didn't look up how old the Pope was, yeah. is out of the general belief that basically people lived very short lives in the Middle Ages. Right. And this is an assumption that comes out of the fact that the average lifespan for medieval people is quite low. But the reason the average lifespan is low isn't because everyone's dying in their 50s. It's because 
the whole rate is lowered by the fact that there is very, very high child mortality as well as women dying in childbirth. Right. So the averages are going to lower. Yeah. So if you can, if you're a man and can get past age 10, it's very possible that you could live to be 80. Okay. And if you're a woman and get past your childbearing years, it's very possible that you could live to be 80. Which Eleanor did. Which Eleanor did. Uh, yeah. Despite having, giving birth to 11 children. <laughs> That's too much. That's too much pregnancy. That's way too much pregnancy. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and she actually did live, I believe, to be about eighty. Henry did not. Henry did die in eleven eighty nine at the age of fifty six. But his children would have had every reason to possibly be concerned about the fact that their father could live to be in his seventies or eighties, and that they would not be getting anything from him anytime soon. Right. And conceivably, they could have died before him. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, sometimes happened. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'm not sure it's not going to happen with uh, with Prince Charles. So, you know, I, I have a lot more faith in her living longer than him ever becoming king. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the reason for the line is that it's tapping into this stereotype of people as dying at age 50 often in the medieval world, which is once again, not quite true. It is interesting in this particular movie, though, that they're using that stereotype when actually the movie doesn't fall into... So it does fall into some stereotypes, but they do such a great job with Eleanor that it kind of almost makes you forget the stereotypes that it does fall into. Yeah, and I think to some extent also it uses stereotypes for humor. Yeah, okay, because the Pope line is funny. Yeah, the Pope line is funny, and so is the Barbarian line. Yeah, yeah. That I think these are both lines that are really capitalizing on certain kinds of stereotypes about the Middle Ages. I'm not sure they're inherently there because the author believes them or because they necessarily inform the rest of the action of the play, but because they assume those lines are going to get a laugh, which... They do. They're funny lines. Yeah. And, and I mean, because people have those perceptions. Right. And this, it doesn't stop anything with the story. And I think you're right that it's more to kind of serve the line because other than that, they do, it seems a really good job with the history. I mean, the fact that they got that, what was it, sixth century hymn in there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I will say that despite this line, the way the boys are acting very much is congress with the assumption that their father might very well live another 10 20 30 years right even john saying you know daddy when we bury you i mean t is him saying i'm gonna have to wait a while to get what you're promising me right he does not expect that that's gonna happen yeah in the next couple of years although ultimately it kind of does yeah yeah <laughs> six years after so, this so with that, I want to move on to the next segment, the segment I call Historia et Veritas, where I discuss a real person, event, or phenomenon related to the film. Now, ordinarily, talking about this movie, I might have just wanted to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine, but I did that the first opportunity I possibly had in the episode talking about the 2010 Robin Hood movie. I decided I wanted to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine because she appears on screen for five minutes as opposed to, you know, Robin Hood. Yeah, but it's that Robin Hood, so... And that Robin Hood's so bad, and really the best parts of those movies are the, part that, the parts that Robin Hood isn't in. It's true, yeah. Instead, I'm going to talk a bit more broadly about the circumstances surrounding the crisis in some ways that the English royal family did indeed find itself in the 1180s. Eleanor had indeed supported her older sons, including Henry, the oldest son, in revolt against their father in the 1170s, in 1173 to 1174. And part of this is all stemming from the fact that their father very much 
has a lot of power and is very resistant to give his sons much real power as opposed to promising them various things after he dies. And his oldest son, Henry, in particular, feels that he has that problem, that he is being promised all sorts of things, but he's not going to get them till his father dies and is not thrilled with that situation. So uh, there is this revolt. The boys are publicly forgiven after Henry ultimately defeats them. Eleanor, in contrast, is arrested in 1174 and kept imprisoned in various English castles until his death in 1189, with her only being let out for special occasions such as Christmas. So this idea of her being let out for a Christmas court is consonant with the real way in which she was treated. She was definitely imprisoned in pretty high style, and she was kept in quite good conditions, but obviously did not have freedom of movement. And uh, just to note, it refers to Salisbury Tower as a place she is currently being kept. She was moved between various castles, but one of the ones she was held was indeed a Norman castle at Salisbury known as Old Sarum. <laughs> Henry did at around this time also take up quite publicly with a mistress, Rosamond Clifford, and there were contemporary rumors that Eleanor had poisoned her. However, as she died in 1176, while Eleanor was imprisoned, she certainly wouldn't have been able to do that unless she had a lot of help. Yeah, this seems like one of those moments where we, a woman is not liked, so they make up a story about her. The one rather surprising thing is that despite that, the person who is often in many of the stories vilified is not Eleanor, but Rosamond. I mean, of course, it's not Henry. So, you know, that's certainly not a surprise. surprise. No, no. Why would we ever hold him accountable for anything? Yes, but despite Rosamond arguably potentially being a kind of victim, she is instead mostly insulted for having had an affair with the king. And her name, Rosamond, is uh, in one place transcribed as Rosa Immundi, which means the Rose of Unchastity. Oh, okay. Which is a bit overly nasty. Yeah, yeah. In the wake of the older son's revolt, Henry is increasingly seen to favor John, mostly because he didn't participate in the revolt, and he probably mostly didn't participate in the revolt because he was six. <laughs> <laughs> he begins to grant him more and more lands. He actually conquers Ireland for John. Huh. That is actually the history of British control over Ireland, is that it begins with Henry literally deciding to conquer it so that John can get something, because the assumption at that time is that young Henry gets England, Richard gets the Aquitaine, and Geoffrey's getting Brittany. And John needs something. And John needs something. And uh, Normandy and Anjou are also going with Henry at that time, I believe. Thus begins a long legacy in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. Not a nice one. No. So in 1182, so shortly before the events of this film, young Henry is frustrated at the fact that he doesn't have any real power, suggests his father give him real control over Normandy. His father assumes this is probably going to lead to him being in rebellion against him and says no. And Henry, in response, asks that his brothers swear homage to him. And Richard, in particular, is very resistant to doing so because he sees the Aquitaine as not necessarily being something that he would hold from his brother, which makes sense because historically he wouldn't hold Aquitaine from the King of England. It's that he would have seen it as his inheritance from his mother and his overlord is in fact being the King of France. Right, okay. And so he refuses. War then breaks out with Richard fighting along his father at this point and then Henry fighting alongside his brother Geoffrey. The war, however, fizzles out due to Henry, young Henry's death of dysentery in 1183. So June 1183, so just about six months before the events of this film. I have an Oregon Trail t-shirt that says you have died of dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it very much shows up in that Oregon Trail context, but it was really common essentially for anyone in the kind of age before current medicine who was on the road a lot, I guess, basically. Dysentery does actually show up in my, my work. There, there's, you know, a lot of diseases. Dysentery is one of them. Yeah. And it seems like in particular, the conditions that you are in, if you are in war and are marching around and in battles, yeah. seem to must be conducive to dysentery. Because there are a lot of medieval monarchs that die of dysentery in the in a kind of military context. Okay. Yeah. Not not fun, I'm imagining. I don't want to imagine no. it, actually. No. Skip skip that imagining. Yeah. <laughs> With young Henry dying, Henry, the elder, now has to adjust his plans for his sons. And now, fortunately, there's only one Henry. It'll make the rest of this much easier. Okay. <laughs> so at this point, the real problem isn't actually the English crown, which he's assuming is now going to go to Richard as the oldest, but that because England's going to Richard, the Aquitaine now should go to somebody else. And so that he wants to go to John. Richard is not on board. Both he has a personal attachment to Aquitaine and has been spending quite a bit of time there. He actually probably spoke better French than he spoke English. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And because he's so so often, I mean, he's this English king, so... It's very interesting that he is presented as kind of quintessentially English in this way when he really, in fact, spent much of his life in France before becoming king of England. Although even then, in this English context, he wouldn't have been speaking modern English anyway, so... No, and in fact, in an English court at this time, the language of the elite is still very much French. I mean, a lot of the English nobles are still only a couple of generations from having been French nobles. Right, right. And you're in a period where there's English that's developing, which is essentially Middle English, which you're kind of seeing starting to develop in this period, is basically then a blend between the Germanic language Old English and Norman French. Okay. The other reason that Richard wouldn't necessarily want to give up the Aquitaine is that being Duke of Aquitaine involves him having real power, while being the future King of England is a completely meaningless title until Henry's dead, which he is not yet, and who knows when that will happen. There was, in fact, however, no Christmas court at Chinon in 1183, but there sure is a lot of war. over the Aquitaine and other issues between Henry and his sons. John, Geoffrey, and Henry are at this point fighting together against Richard, and they do reconcile in 1184, and Eleanor ultimately talks Richard into giving his father the some kind of principal castles in the Aquitaine, basically in response to him threatening that, in, that he'll take away England from Richard and give both England and Normandy to Geoffrey. Geoffrey then dies in 1186. There are different stories about this. I think some just talk about chest pain and others are that he died in a melee battle, a kind of faux battle. Right. The death of Geoffrey also ends up basically ruining the relationship between England and France. So Geoffrey apparently had really been a quite good friend of King Philip. And that was basically what kept a cordial relationship between Philip and Henry going. With Geoffrey's death, Philip then demands control over Brittany and custody over Geoffrey's children, who, by the way, John probably eventually murdered. (laughs) And at this point is now when he demands that in 1186, 1187, that this long-planned marriage between Richard and Alice takes place. And it is 
possible, although not definite, that Alice and Henry were indeed having an affair, and that this could have been one of the reasons for Henry's resistance to making this marriage actually happen, although it's also a marriage that he would have resisted because it might have given Richard more power. Right. I mean, it, I mean, I think the line in the movie is actually really interesting, or not interesting, but kind of telling when Henry says, you can still be my mistress if you marry my son. Right. She goes, not what? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I think he says, well, Johnny won't mind. Uh, but of course, Richard probably would have mind, would have minded. Probably, yeah, yeah. It is indeed also at this point that Henry suggests the possibility of marrying Alice to John instead of Richard, and hints the fact that he might be planning to disinherit Richard entirely. Richard then forms an alliance with Philip, and they ultimately defeat Henry in battle, after which he returns to his lands in Anjou, and then collapses at Chinon, in fact. Uh, so this is where Chinon actually really does end the story, although in a different context. Now defeated at this point, he agrees to swear homage to Philip and gives him some important strategic castles. He names Richard as his heir and agrees that he will transfer Alice to a guardian until her eventual marriage to Richard once he returns from a planned crusade. He then returns to Chinon and died. And allegedly, at least, his death comes basically in response to or uh, the kind of final straw and the thing that kind of, you know, sends him into a shock that caused his ultimate death is hearing that John has betrayed him and that John ultimately sided with Richard. In terms of what their legacy ultimately is in the immediate sense, Richard claims the crown but very quickly leaves on crusade. Eleanor is finally sent, let out of prison and she rules on Richard's behalf in England along with some other regions and of course in the Aquitaine. Richard never marries Alice and in 1191, in, while still technically betrothed to Alice, instead marries a different, completely different person, Berenguela of Navarre, and they do not ultimately have children. Alice ends up making a somewhat less impressive marriage than the one originally planned for her to William the Count of Pontieu, so a kind of mid-rank French nobleman, which is not the best marriage, which is not as good of a marriage as you would expect she should have made as the sister of the King of France. Right. Richard then dies in 1199 without children, with John then ultimately becoming king. Although, as we've talked about before, there are some ways in which his reputation is being rehabilitated, but not from a military perspective as militarily, he is the one who is known to have lost many of England's French possessions, including Normandy and Anjou, to Philip. Actually, I was thinking that, you know, this is the point in the story where the whole Robin Hood legend would come in, and how I think there may be two adaptations of Robin Hood that even mention Eleanor of Aquitaine. Which really bothers me, because if you're setting the Robin Hood legend, as most of them are set in the period of where Richard is away on crusade, the person who's really running things and who is in fact very much involved in kind of trying to rein John in is Eleanor. Right. And yet it's always John that's the problem and John ruling in Richard's stead when that's not what happened. So it's, you know, erasing erasing a woman. Exactly. And that I think it's very fascinating that that is the choice that it's that is made is that there is a powerful woman who is very much then yeah cut out of that story. Yeah, it's it's, it's really unfortunate. And then the recent Robin Hood where she does come in, she's a minuscule part in it. Like you said, five yeah. minutes, if that. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate, especially because, you know, she really is a much better part of that movie than Robin Hood. So... <sighs> 
So with that, I wanted to move into our next section, Fabula Nostra, where we talk about an alternative movie, perhaps inspired by this one. Mm-hmm. So we were talking a little before recording about the fact that there is actually a remake of this starring Glenn Close and Patrick Stewart. Yes, it's either late 90s or early aughts, and it's a television movie. I have not actually seen it. I have no doubt in my mind that Glenn Close is wonderful because Glenn Close is always wonderful in whatever she chooses to do. Yes. And Patrick Stewart's also great. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's perfectly fine. The chemistry between Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn is lightning in a bottle. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe that there's... I certainly I don't believe there's a better version of this movie that could be made. I don't think there could be. And and there there is... A stage tradition for it. I know that at some point Lawrence Fishburne and Stockard Shanning did it together on Broadway. I'm sure they were very dynamic. They're, they both have a lot of presence. I'm sure they were both very regal. But again, I mean, O'Toole and Hepburn are lightning in a bottle. The fact that I sat in a room with him talking about how wonderful she was over 40 years after they made the movie, yeah. that he still had that memory. It, it shows so much in the movie how they kind of play together. So casting Eleanor again, it, it's a tall order. It really is. And uh, I will say also in particular that while I could see deciding it was, you know, it would be fun to go and see a stage production of this just in terms of seeing how that kind of staging of it was different and what that ex- in the experience of seeing live theater, I could see that feeling like it was worth doing. Yeah. I honestly can't imagine deciding that I would rather watch the adaptation rather than just watching this again. No, yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I, like I said, I've known of the movie's existence of the the second adaptation's existence for years, but it's nothing that I've ever actually sought out to watch myself. Given that I did not want to remake this film and instead was thinking about my alternate movie as being something of a sequel maybe around 1188, 1189, potentially also maybe going into those years of Eleanor's life where she is acting as regent on behalf of her son and uh, having that kind of moments maybe of seeing the kind of end of Henry and Eleanor's relationship and his awareness of his own mortality and the fact that in some ways he's lost from a military perspective at least and that Eleanor has triumphed but then also her pivoting to play a very different role and also finally being not imprisoned anymore, which... I'm sure it would be great. (laughs) I'm I'm sure. I'm sure she made the most of it. Yeah. My thought for casting Eleanor is somebody who has played another queen quite successfully before is, uh, of course, Helen Mirren really could pull off an older Eleanor brilliantly. Helen Mirren has played several queens before. She's played both Elizabeths. That's right. I forgot that she played the younger, the, or past Elizabeth, I guess, as well. Yeah. So now I'm just thinking she should play every English queen. Exactly. <laughs> Certainly every, you know, impressive English queen. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think she would make a great Eleanor. I was thinking Malcolm McDowell could be an interesting uh, kind of sullen older Henry at the end of his life. Oh, that could work. Yeah. And uh, then the only other casting that I came up with was for the two of the two remaining of the boys who are, uh, I was thinking for Richard, that Tom Hardy could be uh, interesting uh, in a lot of ways, because I think he does often show up in a lot of films recently as this kind of example of a very classic masculinity. Definitely. And so thinking very much about that and also. I think he is somebody that has, 
I would say more range than people necessarily maybe a few years ago thought he did. And I think that it would be interesting to see him in this kind of period piece role. No, I think he'd be good. And I think he is a good actor. I think he could do it quite well. And then in some ways inspired by this and the kind of a sullen, petulant, not especially impressive seeming John, that the actor that I just think of when I think of that kind of role is Dane DeHaan. <laughs> Sorry, Dane DeHaan. <laughs> Okay, so if you're doing a sequel to The Lion in Winter, I'm doing something of a prequel. Exciting. Yeah, and I'm going to say I only cast one role mm -hmm. because I don't care about the other dudes enough to That's cast fair. them. Yeah. That's very fair. And, and to be fair, if I'm doing a prequel, the only other male character, the, the only male character that would really, I think, come to prominence in it would have to be Louis. Mm -hmm. And I think that if this were to be made a film, I think it would better, be better to have an actual Frenchman playing Louis. Yeah. Given the age that they were at that time, most of the French actors with whom I'm familiar are in their late 30s, 40s to 50s. So they couldn't actually play him. Yeah. And you'd want a French actor in his, say, yeah. early 20s or something. I will say, because from what I understand, Eleanor had an uncle, Jeffrey? Uh, her uncle, Raymond, is the one who is the uh, crusader king of, is it Tripoli or Accra? Anyway. Yeah. So her uncle, Raymond, that I would actually cast Jean Dujardin who was in The Artist mm. and won an Oscar for it and does a bunch of French comedies. Mm. But That'd be fun. Yeah. So as you might guess, I'm going kind of into the crusader era or her, uh -huh. her crusade years and to avoid the potential problems of the fact that the crusades were racist as fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What I would prefer to focus on is kind of the downfall of their crusading endeavor and see kind mm -hmm. of her rise of her political acumen in that era to kind of show how she's going to become the political powerhouse that she is when we meet her in The Lion in Winter. Mm -hmm. With that kind of context of what is very much known to be a failed crusade. Yes. So to cast her... And speaking of The Crown, I would cast the actress who played Princess Margaret on that show, Vanessa Kirby. Okay, so I have not seen The Crown, so I don't know her very well. But... Okay, so Vanessa Kirby is easily, without question, the best part of the two seasons of The Crown that she was on. Hmm. Anytime she's on screen as Margaret, it is completely dynamic. It completely captures your attention. She's really wonderful. She had a small part in Mission Impossible Fallout. With Tom Cruise. Who was she in that? The White Widow. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I was going to say, she yeah, kind okay. of, she towers over him both literally and figuratively. Uh-huh. And then right now she's in, and I feel ridiculous saying this title because I think the title itself is ridiculous, The Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. I still haven't seen it, and I am very excited too. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, we'll talk when you do. I actually really liked it, and I liked her role in it, especially considering what the other women are usually tr given to deal with in the Fast and the Furious movies. And is Helen Mirren also in that? Yes, she plays yeah, her Yeah, I thought she was good. Yeah, because she shows up in, um, I guess, Fate of the Furious as his mother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Helen Mirren plays Vanessa Kirby's mom in this. And yeah. Helen Mirren, Mirren has also played Vanessa Kirby's sister since she's played Queen Elizabeth II. And <laughs> Vanessa Kirby is Queen So it's appropriate for in, the, in these movies that are going to come out at the same time for her to be young Eleanor and Helen Mirren to be old Eleanor. So okay, like I said, I, I want to avoid the whole... It's not that I want to avoid the fact that the Crusades were racist as fuck. We can kind of, if this were to be made a movie, kind of show how that's happening, how their treatment of Muslim peoples is very, very bad. But while also showing that in spite of this failure, Eleanor is still getting something out of it. I think it's also a really interesting, it would be really interesting to tell that story, given also that 
there are a number of uh, people of kind of moralist chroniclers that blame the failure of the crusade on the fact that God forbid a woman was there. Of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> and also I think one of the things about that's nice about this conversation is that Eleanor has never been the star of a story in terms of film. Yeah. It's never happened. This is the most equitable portrayal of her, the lion in winter. It's the most equal footing she ever gets. The way she is usually seen is as a footnote in somebody else's story. And that's really a yeah. shame because there's so much to mine there. I'm reminded a couple of years ago when Darkest Hour came out, which is the Gary Oldman film about Winston Churchill, mm -hmm. uh, the screenwriter, Anthony McCartan, went ahead and said that history is not interesting enough, so you have to embellish and make it more exciting, which, as you and I know, is absolute bullshit. Oh, absolutely. And I think that I've found a number of examples where, honestly, the historical reality is more interesting than the movie. I, you know, I'm not particularly a fan of Winston Churchill, but Anthony McCartan wrote a really boring movie about Winston Churchill, and yeah. a movie about Winston Churchill should not be boring. So history is not boring. It's really exciting. It's really dynamic. It's, it's really multi-layered. And I think that if someone were to actually approach Eleanor's story, they could really show that without, you know, having to embellish too much. Yes, and I think a lot of the ways in which this movie is strongest are things that are really drawing on historical realities. I think that makes it really strong. It's part of the success of it is that they, clearly someone did their research. Yes. And I think also part of the, the reason I think this works is that it's not a complete biopic of Henry II, but is this kind of bottled moment. Yes, that it's this bottled moment, and also that I think it is, even though in some ways it is certainly Henry's story, I think it is very much true that it is a fairly equal treatment, and that in a lot of ways I think it is a movie about their relationship. And I think it's very much right that she was nominated as lead actress in this, that this is a leading role. 100%. This wouldn't have worked in any other way. I think probably we have hinted a little bit at what the results are going to be in our final section, the estimatio or ratings segment. But how would you rate this film on a scale of one to five? Five is the best based on whatever criteria makes you happy. Oh, it, it's, it's a five out of five. I mean, there's so much going on that I can't even pinpoint what criteria that I'm grading it on. Writing and direction are something that we definitely touched on in terms of dialogue, in terms of setting it in its its the, theatrical aspect. The combination of Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. I mean, I have told people repeatedly, watch it for those two. It's like a really yes. great tennis match, watching them go back and forth together. Absolutely. I would also rate this a five out of five. My typical criteria are... Historical accuracy, and honestly, I would say I think this film does better than most in terms of at least somebody did their research, the choices that they made where they ignore historical reality or kind of allied events are understandable and make sense for the plot, and I get why they make those choices as opposed to others that seem incomprehensible in other films. And uh, the other kind of criteria, I mean, you know, certainly a criterion that I use is just if I actually like the movie, I love this movie. And uh, finally, in practice, I always, to some extent, base my judgments on, I guess I would say, to what extent this movie treats women, its female characters, with any respect. And this is, I think, one of the best portrayals of a medieval woman that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, like we said earlier, the movie absolutely respects who she was. Yes, which I think is really fantastic. Yeah, and there's never a moment, even the moment when she cries, there's never a moment where she's belittled in any way. Yeah, I think it's just 
so amazing and so impressive that she's never belittled. Uh, her agency has never taken away from her. Yes. You don't have to watch her get, you know, raped or attacked. No. <laughs> it's, it's really nice. It's so refreshing. It's, it's such a low bar. It's such a nice change of pace to not see a woman raped in a medieval. It's so nice. And that, yeah, as discussed before, they're... Are two women. They both survive to the end of the movie. They both have names. The consent situation with Alice is maybe a bit questionable, but in the context of the film, neither of them are raped. Yep. So, I mean, you said low, low bars in some cases, yeah. but honestly, it does well for this. Yeah, I think it really does. So, yeah. okay, five out of five. Yeah, double five out of five, which I think might be one of the best scores so far. <laughs> Finally, I just wanted to take a few moments to speak to our listeners. So first of all, Morgan, are there places that our listeners could find you on the internet? Uh, there are not, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So keep an eye out for your future book. You can find this podcast in your preferred podcatcher app, as well as on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and on Facebook. If you enjoyed this episode, I really hope you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and I will read five-star reviews on future episodes. And if you have any questions, I would love to hear from you via email at mediaevilpod at at gmail.com. So that's media.evilpod at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. You'll let me out for Easter? Come the resurrection, you can strike me down again. Perhaps next time I'll do it. And perhaps you won't. You know, I hope we never die! So do I. You think there's any chance of it? <laughs> <laughs>